We are excited for our first sponsor of the day because it's us. We wanted to just remind everyone that we have a Patreon account at patreon.com slash insightpod. There you will find audio articles, documentary talk, and bonus episodes. We put up new content in each of these categories every month. The latest content includes The Mysterious Death of Colin Madsen, The University Towers Arsons, and a talk about Beware, the Slenderman documentary. Go check it out, and thank you for all of your support. In 1992, Cheryl Levitt and her daughter Susie Streeter and Susie's friend Stacy McCall went missing. The women apparently went missing from Cheryl's house with nothing more than a smashed porch light cover to indicate that something sinister had happened. Though there have been suspects in the case, no one has ever been charged and the case remains one of Springfield, Missouri's most well-known cases. This is the second of two parts covering this case, so we recommend you go and listen first to part one if you haven't already. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie and with me is Allie. How are you, Allie? I am doing very well. How are you? I'm good. I am excited to get back to this case. We have so much to talk about. Last week, we talked about circumstances around the disappearance, so we kind of had to just get a lot of information out. But this week, we get to kind of go into the people the police focused on and get into those tips and clues that have come in over the course of this investigation. Everyone heard the episode last week, so I'm not really going to recap it. We ended talking a little bit about opportunistic abduction, and it is not the most likely scenario, but we can't discount it entirely, so we will get into it in a little bit. But first, let's run through those few people close to Cheryl and Susie who were on the police radar early on. Of course, Cheryl's ex-husbands had to be checked out and ruled out from the get-go. All of them lived out of state and they could prove they were at their home states when the women disappeared. The only close relative in Missouri was Bart, Cheryl's estranged son. It's understandable he was an early person of interest. He did have substance abuse issues and a recent shoving match with his younger and much smaller sister. Also, when they called Cheryl's ex-husbands and got in touch with Bart's father, he told the police that they should be looking into Bart. But for his part, Bart was cooperative with police. He spoke with them freely and consented to a polygraph, and he passed. He generally didn't say or do anything to increase suspicion on himself. His alibi was that he passed out after a hard night of drinking, which is typically a difficult alibi to confirm, but he had a girlfriend and a neighbour who were willing to vouch for him. Bart left Springfield about three months after the disappearances, but has done interviews about the case. He said he feels like he and his family would have reconciled, particularly as he matured and got his drinking under control. They just didn't have the time they needed to get those fences mended. The motive for Bart to have done this is a bit thin. He didn't have anything to gain, really. Cheryl was still recovering financially from a divorce, 
So she had few assets. She had overborrowed on the house so that she could do those upgrades. So inheriting the house would have been more of a burden than a benefit. The money in the house wasn't taken. There was a life insurance policy he may have had a claim to, but Cheryl would have to be confirmed deceased. And without a body, that was going to take years. Even if he was angry at his mom and decided to go over there after a night of drinking to give her a piece of his mind and things escalated, he did a really good job for a drunk person of leaving absolutely no sign behind that anything had happened. Another person who came to police's attention very early on was Dustin Reckler. He and Susie had dated for a while, but they broken up because Dustin was involved in a crime that Susie had some knowledge of afterwards, and it was just too much for her. Dustin and a few friends of his had broken into a mausoleum on February 21st, 1992. One of these other young men was Michael Clay. In breaking into the mausoleum, they stole skulls and bones, which looked possibly like some occult-type activity, particularly since we're talking about the early 1990s here. This was the year before the infamous satanic panic case of the West Memphis Three in the neighbouring state of Arkansas. In an interview, one of the detectives said when he first went to Dustin's house to talk to him, he saw a cult-type decor, but when he went back, all of it was removed. Now, I could see this becoming another runaway train satanic panic case, except I think the motive for the grave robbing was the usual motive for grave robbing, and that is money. They sold the gold tooth fillings they had gotten from the bodies to a local pawn shop. For all this destruction, they only made $30 from it. And being the criminal masterminds they clearly were, the pawn shop required the seller to provide identification, so the sale led right back to their door. And we already said that Susie ran with a rougher crowd, but this was more than she bargained for. She broke up with Dustin, and she even sat for a police statement on March 5th. The men were charged with a felony count of institutional vandalism, and Susie was set to testify against them. The motive, after we push satanic panic, a cult angle out of the way, they may have wanted to prevent Susie from testifying or even to just retaliate against her for ratting them out. And their alibi for the night the women went missing was that they were at a large event, a party or a concert, and they were together. It's unclear how well corroborated it was. During a police interview, Michael Clay made a comment about wishing the three missing women were dead. And he said that he made this comment in response to one of the interrogators annoying him. So this seems to bring up the West Memphis Three again in my mind with how Damien Eccles would say things that could be seen as callous or even scary but was probably just posturing. In the end, both men pled guilty to the vandalism charge and they received probation. The idea that they would have murdered Susie, Cheryl and Stacey to keep Susie from testifying doesn't make a lot of sense when the charges weren't that serious and the penalty was not that severe. Now, it's possible Dustin was harboring some resentment in general over the breakup and Susie's willingness to testify against him. Honestly, there is nothing that links Dustin, Michael, or any of their friends to the disappearance. 
It doesn't seem like they were criminally sophisticated enough to get away with this leaving no evidence behind, but we know potential evidence may have been lost or obscured when people entered the home that day. But even with that, to do something to the three women for them not to be found all these decades later, I'm not convinced anyone in that particular group had enough criminal know-how. And the police seems to agree with us. Both men were cleared by the chief of police. However, it must be said that not all of his detectives agreed that they should have been. Another ex-boyfriend of Susie's, Mike Kovacs, was questioned and submitted a polygraph. Susie had dated him in 1991, eight months before she disappeared, and she sought a protection order against him. At the time she took out the protection order, they had been broken up for about a month, yet he continued to harass her. Their relationship was abusive, and after the breakup, he would call her at home, show up at her work, and he allegedly slashed her tires. There was a police report accusing Mike and another woman of making threats against Susie. Cheryl was with Susie when she made these reports to the police, and the police report noted that Cheryl said she was afraid for her daughter. But when Susie didn't show up to court a week later for the hearing for the restraining order, the petition was dismissed. Now, Missouri makes it pretty easy to look up cases on their court website, which is how we know the resolution of the restraining order application. And in looking into Mike a little more, it doesn't appear there were any charges against him related to the slashing tires or making threats, at least nothing that went to court. It's possible Susie wasn't going to testify against him, or they were just worried she wasn't going to show up to testify because she didn't show for the restraining order hearing and the charges may have been dropped. A big question we have to wrestle with looking at this case is, was this the work of a lone perpetrator or was this two or possibly more people? It would have been difficult for one person to have carried this all out. Except for the globe around the outside light, nothing seemed out of place. No one broke in and it doesn't appear that any of the three women attempted to fight back. There are no reports of screams being heard. Even with a gun, we have to question how easy it would have been for one person alone to get complete compliance from all three women. It's possible. I mean, if he did have a gun and had it on Susie, Cheryl would not do anything that might endanger Susie. And she may have been able to convince Stacy to also comply. She was the adult in the situation. Someone would have only needed to threaten one of them to get the other two to follow. But that absolutely nothing was heard and not a single vase was tipped over. It does make me wonder if there were two or more people involved. I think that common belief from law enforcement is that they are looking for more than one person. As I said, and as you said, Charlie, there is too much going on in order for there not to be. Because you have to think before threats being made, there would have been some initial panic, some evidence that something happened. The women were in different rooms, something to alert each other of what was going on. It makes sense that there were at least two people, one to restrain Cheryl, who was possibly in bed reading a book or asleep at this point, and then one or more to restrain Susie and Stacy, who were getting ready to go to sleep. So now I think is a good time to talk about the one thing that was disturbed, and that's the broken globe. If the light bulb had been broken, I think it would be easy to see why the globe was broken. No light in the middle of the night would make a good cover for someone. 
but the light was actually intact. And when Janelle showed up at the house, it was on. So was the smashed globe just some kind of bizarre coincidence? That seems unlikely since it wasn't broken while it was affixed to the light fixture. It's not like someone bumped into it. It seems like someone had taken it off. If it was broken before Susie and Stacy had gotten to the house, they would have cleaned it up themselves because the way Janelle and Mike describe it, it was across the porch and you couldn't walk into the door without stepping on it. So it's pretty clearly linked to the crime somehow. And I have two thoughts on the globe. One is that the globe was unscrewed and smashed on purpose to get the women to open the door to see what was going on. There were two slats in Susie's room from her blinds that were separated from the rest as though someone may have peered out. That could be unrelated, but if there was a noise outside, the girls may have peeked through the blinds to see what was happening. One of the women may have even gone to the door and unlocked it to look out, which would have given entrance to the person or persons who were then going to abduct them. Now, the second thought I had was that maybe the globe was unscrewed and then dropped on accident by the perpetrator. Maybe he was taking off the globe and was going to then unscrew the light bulb to make it dark. But when he dropped and shattered the globe, the women were alerted to his presence. I mean, I can't really think of any other reason someone would have taken the globe off. But then if the women were alerted to his presence, then why wasn't there something more, some more disturbance, more sounds being heard? How did he get in the house then? You would imagine they wouldn't have just let someone in who was trying to, you know, unscrew a light bulb. Yeah, it absolutely doesn't make sense to me. I feel like any theory I come up with on this globe, there's a reason why it doesn't fit. It's really baffling to me. Another thing to note about the glass is that if the women weren't wearing shoes when they left, at the very least, Stacy wasn't. Cheryl and Susie both owned a lot of shoes, so it's possible a pair each was missing and no one would know. But Stacy only had the one pair with her, a pair of sandals that she wore that night, and they were found at the house with her shorts. Now, it could be possible that she wore a pair of Cheryl or Susie's shoes, though, when she left the house. Again, it is possible that another pair was missing and no one would know. No one noticed blood from the door to the driveway, which you would expect if the women exited that door and stepped over shards of glass. One of the reasons it was swept up was because it was right where Janelle would have had to have stepped to knock on the door and enter the house. So the women may have left the home through a side or back door if they left on their own accord. Janelle said she did go to the backyard when she checked the house for the women, which may have obscured evidence back there as well. Otherwise, it would have been a good possibility to follow to perhaps find fingerprints of the perpetrator or perpetrators. There is another theory that's based on a ruse to get the women to open the door. About a week after the disappearance, a letter of sorts was found in a newspaper rack at a local grocery store. It was basically a crude drawing of a public housing complex called the Bolivar Road Apartments. On the paper were the words, use ruse of gas man checking for leak. Police searched the apartments and nothing came of it as far as we know. However, this did fit with an early theory 
that the person gained entry to the home with the ruse of being a utility worker who was possibly alerting them to an emergency like a gas leak. And some of this comes from an early suspect or person of interest in the case, Robert Craig Cox. Cox was living in Springfield, Missouri at the time, and he worked as a utility locator. You know that whole call before you dig thing so that underground utility lines could be marked? He was one of those guys. So while he wasn't the gas man, he would have had a uniform that would have been enough to at least get the door open. But we have to go way back to December 30th, 1978 in Orlando, Florida, to find the start of the path that led investigators to Cox. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Fashion is my world. I am at my happiest when I can take a random pile of clothes and turn it into a look that feels like it's off the runway at Fashion Week. But even though that's what I love to do, I don't really have the experience to make it my full-time career yet. That's why I started my own fashion blog with Squarespace. With their gorgeous templates and -and drag-and-drop tools, it took me no time at all to create a blog that feels representative of who I am. I can showcase photos of my work, share my resume, and connect each post to my social media to hopefully turn my passion into my career. Take the next step to bring your passions to life. Go to squarespace.com slash passion for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch... Use the offer code PASSION to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com slash passion and use offer code PASSION. Okay, so Cox was a 19-year-old army ranger in 1978. He was on vacation in Orlando with his family when he left the motel for the night. When he came back, he was bloody and a portion of his tongue was bitten off and he needed emergency surgery. Now, he claimed he was at a roller rink and got into a fight. He bit his own tongue when he was punched. But the nurse who examined him that night said the arc of the bite was going the wrong way for him to have done it to himself. It looked like someone else had bitten his tongue. That same night, a 19-year-old Disney World employee named Sharon Zeller was heading home from her shift around 10 p.m., She never made it home and her body was found severely beaten and stuffed into a sewer in the Orange Grove near the hotel where Cox was staying at. She was there for five days, but her remains were severely decomposed due to the dampness. Cox was an early suspect in the Sharon Zeller murder, but the case wasn't very strong. But in 1988, ten years later, he was taken to trial and convicted. He was given the death penalty and he immediately appealed. Less than two years later, Florida's Supreme Court made a very rare decision. Not only did they hold that the conviction of Cox was not supported by evidence, they ordered that he be acquitted. Normally, an appeal like this would be sent back for retrial. The Supreme Court will basically just set everything back to square one. They usually won't entirely reverse the original decision and grant a not guilty verdict, but that's exactly what they did here. And it was unanimous, so the case against him had to have been incredibly weak. Due to the double jeopardy laws, Cox could never be retried for this crime again, and he spent a little under two years on death row. What may have prompted his 1988 arrest and trial was a 1986 guilty plea he entered in California. He pled guilty there to kidnapping and assault with a deadly weapon and was given a nine-year prison sentence. So he was arrested for the Zeller's murder while in prison and then moved to Florida for the trial. 
After he was released from death row, he was sent back to California to complete that sentence there. He was paroled early, and that's how he ended up back in Springfield, Missouri, living with his parents in 1992. The Springfield police wouldn't know anything about him if it wasn't for Sharon Zeller's family. They felt like the man who had murdered their daughter and had kidnapped and assaulted other women was walking free. So they were keeping tabs on him after he got out of jail, and they knew he was in Springfield, Missouri. Sharon's mother was home watching TV when she saw one of the national broadcasts about the missing women from Springfield, and she was sure it sounded like something Cox would have done. She was pretty convinced he had been involved because what are the odds two kidnappers were in the area? She told her husband and son about the missing women, and her son called Springfield Police. Cox gave an alibi that was confirmed by his girlfriend. It was widely reported that his alibi was that he had gone to church with her. Now, let's just stop here and say this alibi is completely confusing. How early are these people getting up for church? We know the women went missing as early as 2.30 in the morning, but no later than 7 or 8. We would have to assume his church alibi included having spent the night before with her, otherwise it doesn't exclude him. But there was a lack of evidence to match to anyone, including Cox, and this lead did not lead anywhere. Cox was again arrested in 1995 after he committed a robbery in Texas. It was elevated to an aggravated robbery because he had a gun, a gun which he pointed at a 12-year-old girl. He is serving a life sentence and has no anticipated parole date, though from what I read about Texas law, he could be eligible after 35 years. So he has another 12 years to serve at a minimum. Because of his crime, he isn't eligible for credit for good behavior or anything like that. He actually has to serve the whole of those 35 years. Springfield PD decided to have another go at Cox a couple of times with him locked up in Texas. They also called his girlfriend, who he had since broken things off with, and she recanted the alibi. She said that he had actually called her and asked her to lie to the police for him. So now his alibi's gone. For his part, Cox gave authorities answers during their interviews that seemed kind of designed to mess with them. He would never implicate himself completely, but he wouldn't exactly sound innocent either. He'd make it seem like he had some information. Whether he does have information or he just likes to break up the boredom of jail, we don't know. His comments indicate that he knows that the women are dead and that he knows where they are buried and it's in the Springfield area, but he won't give more than that. Cox has told the media much the same thing and he said he would talk when his mother passes away. Last we could tell she was alive and in her 80s. Look, I don't have a lot of faith that he'll talk then either. He would be opening himself up to prosecution for three murders and Missouri does have the death penalty. I think this is more just mind games. There is no physical evidence linking Cox and the circumstantial evidence is a little shaky. He was in the area and a jury previously convicted him of a murder. He had also been convicted of kidnapping. He had a violent past. He also had a connection to the women, though not a strong one. At some point, he worked as a mechanic at a used car lot, which, oddly enough, is where Stacey McCall's father worked for a brief amount of time. The thought process is that maybe Cox had seen Stacey visiting her father at work. 
Yes, they only worked together for a short period of time, but there is a chance that Stacey could have visited her father and maybe Cox saw her. The police did wonder under this theory that maybe Stacey was the original target here. While he's technically acquitted in the Sharon Zellers murder, the theory of that murder was that he had intercepted her somewhere along her drive home from work. It is possible that he did the same to Stacey when he saw her driving to Susie's house, that he followed them and he used his uniform to trick them into thinking he was a safe person to open the door for. But that's about all we have on him. Unless he makes good on his promise to give more information after his mother dies, I don't see this going anywhere. He's a possibility, but he's not the only possibility. There are local rumors that Cheryl went on a few dates with a man named Gerald Carnahan, or maybe she just cut his hair. The rumor mill is not entirely consistent on how they are connecting Gerald Carnahan to the missing women, but it sounds like the police ruled out that they ever dated. I know all Missourians are doing a double take at the name Carnahan, though. For those outside of the region, the Carnahans are kind of like a Missouri version of the Kennedys in the sense that they're a political family with generations serving in a variety of political offices. No idea if Gerald is a relation to theirs, but they're probably going to like some distance from him regardless. This is another cold case connection. It was in 1985 when a young woman named Jackie Johns was found raped and beaten to death in Lake Springfield, four days after her car had been found abandoned and covered in blood. Carnahan was an early suspect after a tip came in that someone saw him with Jackie on the night she was last seen. But again, like Cox, there wasn't enough evidence to connect him for sure. And he had an alibi of being home watching TV with his stepdaughter. The parallels to Cox continue because in 1993, Carnahan tried to abduct an 18-year-old young woman and was convicted for that crime. He also had some robbery and burglary arrests. But they still couldn't link him to Jackie Johns until the Springfield Police Department got a grant to test DNA in cold cases. In 2007, he was arrested in the case when his DNA matched the DNA from semen taken from Jackie's body. Jackie's father was in poor health, so the state decided not to pursue the death penalty. A death penalty case takes many more years to go to trial, and they wanted Jackie's dad to be able to see this through. In 2010, Carnahan was found guilty. Missouri has mandatory sentencing for first-degree murder, which is life without parole, and that's where he remains today. So here we have another known abductor-slash-rapist-slash-murderer in the same area. When Sharon Zeller's family thought it wasn't a coincidence Cox was in the area, well, here we have another guy. The connection between Carnahan and any of the women hasn't been publicly confirmed by authorities, though. And it doesn't stop there. We have yet another bad actor in the area. And like Cox, this guy claimed to have information about the disappearances of Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy. Thirteen months after the disappearance, a man named Stephen Eugene Garrison was arrested on a weapons charge and decided he wanted to make a deal. Because this was not just any old weapons charge. It would be his third felony. Missouri has a habitual offender law, commonly known as the three strikes law in some states, 
But in Missouri, we call people like Garrison prior and persistent offenders. So simply put, Garrison was facing far more prison time for this gun charge than he would have if it had been his first or second felony. In exchange for some consideration on his pending charges and the sentence he faced, he would give investigators information on the missing women. So they brought him back to Springfield to see what he knew. They took him to a motel room and he came out with a story about how he was at a party where everyone was drinking and one of his friends confessed to the crime. Because of how much information was in the media, though, Garrison had a lot of details. And at first, it was hard to verify if what he said was from actual firsthand knowledge or because he read it in the newspaper or he heard it on 48 Hours. But he gave police a piece of information that they say was never released publicly and they felt they were onto something with Garrison. They, of course, have not said what this information was, but while this information was enough to convince them that Garrison had insider information, they did not buy his story about how he just happened to hear a drunken confession at a party. It always seems to be a friend of a friend with these kind of people. They believe it was more likely if he had any knowledge, it was because he was involved somehow. He gave police a specific location to search, a piece of property to search in nearby Webster County. He said the women's bodies would be found there. He also said the van that was used to abduct the women would be found south, 12 miles away from Fortland. This property was the site of previous murders, interestingly enough. In 1990, in what was considered a drug deal gone wrong, Francis Lee Robb Sr. killed two people. He pled guilty and was in prison when the three women went missing, so he couldn't have been directly involved. However, there is something that links a number of men whose names come up when suspects are discussed. There is a motorcycle club called the Galloping Goose Motorcycle Club, and people connected to Francis Robb were part of this club. We don't want to get too deep into this because we don't want to veer too far from the case, but to give a brief summary, the Galloping Goose Motorcycle Club is called a 1% club, and that doesn't mean that they're rich motorcyclists, which is honestly what I thought when I first heard 1%, and it led to some confusion, but it actually refers to them being outlaws. Motorcycle clubs and motorcyclists have gotten a bad reputation over the years, ask the average person to name a motorcycle club, and they'll probably name the Hells Angels. The American Motorcyclist Association once made a statement that 99% of motorcyclists are law-abiding. So a 1% club is an outlaw club where they are not law-abiding and they're not ashamed to announce it. So the Galloping Goose Club was involved in the business of marijuana and meth. The theory here is that the men involved in the motorcycle club were also involved in the disappearance of the women, possibly because one of them knew something they shouldn't know. Now, it's hard to imagine who. Stacy wouldn't have. Cheryl has been described as a homebody by her friends. She worked and she went home. She worked in a salon with other hairdressers, so it's not like someone confided something to her in the middle of a busy salon. So that really leaves Susie, who we know had a boyfriend at one time who was into drugs and criminal behavior. So the link here would be somehow to Susie, though nobody's been able to draw really a solid line. The only thing is, Cheryl was the only one who was supposed to be home that night. But perhaps whoever was behind this didn't know that Susie wasn't supposed to be there and somehow just got lucky that Susie was there. 
Or maybe planned on putting a hit out on Susie that night and just followed her home. It's absolutely possible that they were followed from a party. And I've read a lot of people who believe that they were followed from the party. This is probably the theory that I lean towards the most. It makes the most sense, given the information that we know. The proof that is publicly available to us linking the motorcycle gang to the women isn't very strong, though. When Susie did know something about her boyfriend's criminal activity, she told her mum and she told the police. So we would imagine she would have told someone if she knew about something more serious or something that put her in danger. Unless, I guess, if she felt that her life was threatened if she did tell someone. But back to Garrison, who led us on this side journey into the motorcycle club. He had that meeting with investigators in the motel room, and when they left him alone for a short period of time, he escaped custody. He was on the run for three weeks, and in that three weeks, he broke into the apartment of a 20-year-old college student. He held her in that apartment while he assaulted and raped her. What he did to her was absolutely horrific. He is now serving a 40-year sentence for that crime. So we have Garrison, who has ties to other outlaw bikers who committed other murders, generally drug-related, and he's claiming some knowledge of this crime. The search of the farm Garrison led police to did not recover remains, but items were removed. We don't know anything about them because there was a gag order imposed on the entire search and search warrant. Garrison's really faded over the years from being named quite as frequently like others, like Susie's boyfriend and Robert Cox. But he has, as far as I know, not been ruled out. In late 1994 into early 1995, a federal grand jury met to hear evidence. As we've covered before, grand jury proceedings are in secret, so we don't know entirely what happened. What we do know is that Robert Cox was presented and his girlfriend officially recanted her alibi to the grand jury. There were three other men presented to the jury. Again, these records are sealed, but we have some basic information that was reported in the media. The first man looked as if he was a 36-year-old man. It was reported that he was from Springfield, had a long criminal record, he escaped from prison, and his crime most recent to the grand jury was raping a woman in her home. So obviously this points right to Garrison. The next man was described as a 28-year-old man from Kansas with a long criminal record. There really isn't anything very specific to help us narrow down who this may be. The third man, though, is someone we haven't heard about before. He was described as a 28-year-old man with a criminal record for theft-related charges, and he escaped from prison with the first man in 1990. So, of course, that got my attention. So I looked into the newspaper archives. Stephen Garrison was arrested after a bit of a standoff in 1990 when he escaped from a minimum security prison in Kansas. In the article, it's mentioned that the man he escaped with was also caught, and his name was Mike Rader. According to what I found on a Kansas inmate search, he was paroled in October 1991 and absconded from parole in February 1992. I have no idea what connects Mike to the case unless Garrison implicated him in his statements to the police. His name does not come up in any article or newscast I saw, and it took me a couple of steps to even find his connection to Garrison. What we do know about the Grand Jury 3, as these three men have come to be known as, was that they all had long criminal records. They had all spent time in Kansas prisons, 
and they all knew each other while in prison. All of them were out of jail when the women went missing, and one source claims that they all arrived in Springfield shortly before the disappearance, though I've not been able to verify that myself. But these three men, if they were connected, would explain a bit about the disappearance, especially how they got three people out of there without any disturbance. But this still didn't lead to any answers. In January of 1994, the grand jury disbanded without issuing any indictments. That's not the same as clearing any of the persons of interest, though. It simply means there wasn't enough evidence against anyone to go to trial. This case suffers from such a small amount of evidence, it's frustrating. As is often said of unsolved cold cases, if we knew the why, then we would know the who. And if we knew the who, we would know the why. But without one of those pieces of the puzzle, the case remains such a deep and confusing mystery. Before we move on to what happened in the investigation after the grand jury, we are going to quickly cover the one person who comes up when talk turns to the idea of an optimistic killer, Larry Duane Hall. Yep, this guy again. For those who aren't familiar with everyone's favorite suspect, we'll give you a primer. Larry Hall and his twin brother Gary were into Civil War reenactments. They traveled the United States as reenactors, and they have been to Missouri a number of times. Larry is suspected of being a serial killer. He claims it, at least. Investigators have looked at what he's readily confessed to and also cold cases from various places that he had been traveling to at the various times he was there. Adding those numbers together gives them about 30 to 40 potential victims of Larry Dwayne Hall. This would make him as prolific as John Wayne Gacy and Ted Bundy. He was caught after the death of Jessica Roach in September of 1993. Jessica was a 15-year-old girl out riding her new bicycle in a rural area of Illinois. She was only gone from her home for 30 minutes when her sister saw her bike abandoned on the road. It took six weeks for her body to be found in Indiana, even though it was a different state, this is just 16 miles away. She had been abducted, raped, and killed. Nearly a year after Jessica's remains were found, the case was already growing cold. Then two teen girls complained to police about a creepy man in a van following them and trying to talk to them. They were smart enough to take down the license plate and police tracked the van to Larry Hall. Marissa from the Vanished podcast has a great episode on him. I think it's episode 13. It's an early one anyway and definitely worth the listen. They connected Hall to yet another incident where he followed two teen girls on bicycles. That made them think of Jessica, who had been abducted while out riding, and Hall confessed when interrogated. At trial, though, he recanted the confession, but was convicted anyway. The conviction was overturned on appeal, but then he was convicted a second time. Though he confessed to some very specific crimes and to others more vaguely, he's actually never been convicted of murder. His conviction in Jessica's case is the abduction and rape. Jessica's body had been mangled by large farm equipment and the cause of death couldn't even be guessed at. But based on the confession, Hall had strangled her. So you'll notice Ali mentioned he was driving a van. Multiple news reports call it a Dodge van. 
A little digging, and yes, it was a cab over engine, like the one seen by multiple witnesses, including two who believe they saw Susie behind the wheel. There is a little more to this than just the van. There is a book called Urges, a Chronicle of Serial Killer Larry Hall, and it's written by Christopher Hawley Martin. And Christopher has corresponded with Hall, who's serving a life without parole sentence in a federal prison. Because Jessica Roach had been taken over the Illinois-Indiana state line, it actually fell under the Lindbergh Law and was a federal case. So Christopher says that Hall told him that he buried five women in the Mark Twain National Forest and that three of those women were from Springfield. He hasn't given any more specific information as to where they were buried. And saying it was at Mark Twain doesn't really help. Mark Twain is... 1.5 million acres of land. Something else he did say, though, he said he had accomplices. No one else has ever been implicated in Larry's crimes. While internet sleuths have called into question the involvement of his twin brother because they did travel together, he's never been named a suspect, and people who know Gary are quick to jump in and defend him. He's been really open with the media, and he believes his brother's various confessions are true. Even though Larry sometimes recants these confessions after he gives them. At least one case Larry is suspected in, the 1991 murder of Michelle Dewey, was an optimistic killing in her home. His confession says that he saw her outside of her home and then barged in and attacked her inside her home. He left after murdering her because, as he said, her toddler son was screaming and it bothered him. Gary has also said Larry's preferred victims were young women with long brown hair and an athletic build, which totally describes Stacey. But to link Larry, we would first have to know he was even in the area. He had been to the site of the Battle of Wilson's Creek in 1991, which is just outside of Springfield. According to a family member, he and Gary went back in the summer of 1992. I looked it up and the commemoration of the battle would be on August 10th every year, but it is open for tours at other times. Now, it would have been a long trip from his Indiana home just for the tour, though, so I imagine it was more likely he was there in August. If Larry was involved, he would have seen the women either driving to the house or outside the house as they were entering it. It would have been the most optimistic of optimistic attacks, though. There is such a small window his path could have crossed theirs. Larry told police that he would take them to the bodies in the forest in exchange for immunity in the crimes, but they have not taken him up on this. Really, unless he's very familiar with the forest or the part of it he supposedly buried bodies, it's unlikely he can even find it again. I mean, we're talking a huge forest with how trees fall and underbrush grows. It's not going to look the way it did when he buried bodies there, if he buried anyone there at all. So Larry's involvement is, I mean, it's really, there are a lot of moving parts there that don't necessarily fit. So where the case is through the grand jury. In 1997, Cheryl Levitt and Susie Streeter's family decided to go to court and have the women declared dead. And we've talked before about how this is such a difficult decision for families to make. Sometimes the need to do it is practical, and that's really what it was here. Cheryl and Susie were both adults who lived together with no one else. So all of their possessions were in probate, and it was on hold until their estates could be settled. The family did not have access to their possessions, which included sentimental items. 
There was also a life insurance policy that the family had to keep paying premiums on while Cheryl was missing, and those premiums were about to go up. So there were some very practical reasons here, and for some families, it can help them have some finality so that they can move forward in their grief, but others don't find that healing, and instead, they see it as a mark of the loss of hope. And both feelings, both paths are 100% valid. Grief is not one size fits all. So while Cheryl and Susie have been declared dead, the McCalls will not consider Stacy deceased without her body being recovered. Their situation is slightly less complicated because Stacy was a dependent in their home and they had all of her keepsakes and all of her belongings this whole time. Like you said, there is no right or wrong way to handle this terrible situation these families found themselves in. Janice and Stu McCall put their energy into advocacy and starting a non-profit called One Missing Link. The organisation focuses on doing prevention, education and assisting families in need with missing persons. But Streeter started a website about the case that his daughter now maintains. The families are still hoping for that one big break in the case. And one woman, an investigative reporter named Kathy Bard, she believes that big break has come. Kathy became interested in the case when she moved to the area, but the more she dug into it, the more involved she became. Investigators were still following leads and they conducted a number of searches and even property digs that were not made public. But Kathy also began receiving tips and she said she received multiple tips about a parking garage at Cox South Hospital. It was built a year after the women went missing and the tips came into Kathy that the women had been buried there and the parking lot built on top of their graves. There is some question about where this information came from, though a psychic definitely was involved in the development of this tip, though Kathy says she heard it from multiple sources and not just a psychic. And Kathy isn't the only one leaning on psychics, by the way. The Springfield police consulted numerous people claiming to be psychics. Very few of them had similar visions, and the only things that were similar between them were very vague things like the women were by water. So this tip about the hospital was first looked into back in 2006. Kathy herself hired an engineer named Rick Norland with extensive training and experience using ground-penetrating radar. He usually uses it for construction and demolition services. But Kathy simply told him that she was working on a missing persons case without giving him a lot of details. She never told him that there were three people she was looking for. She had him do this ground-penetrating magic on a corner of the parking garage at the hospital. And what he saw in that area were three anomalies that he finds consistent with graves. Two were parallel to each other, and the third was perpendicular. Now, Rick can't say these are graves, just consistent with what he has seen in the past with graves. The way ground-penetrating radar works isn't like it's taking an image. The screen doesn't look like an X-ray or an ultrasound. It looks like a bunch of squiggly lines, and you need someone like Rick to interpret what is on the screen. So it's not like he was seeing an image of bones. He just saw disturbances in the dirt not that deep that were the right size and shape of a grave. Police, though, they weren't sold. First, they questioned the origin of the tip. 
it didn't come from someone claiming to be involved or hearing a confession. It came from a psychic vision. And second, the construction of the parking garage didn't even begin until over a year after the women went missing. Had someone buried them there before construction began, they would have been unearthed in the excavation and the graves wouldn't still be intact to show the anomalies Rick had saw. The only explanation would be that their remains were moved there a year after their kidnapping. Now that seems like an unnecessary risk when an active construction site would see a lot of foot traffic, whereas rural Missouri has lots and lots of places that hardly anyone ever goes. The police then brought in their own expert who discounted Rick's interpretation of the findings. But this is a tip. And a lot of people just want it checked. The police don't want to spend the time and resources on a costly excavation, but I read that this may be able to be checked with just a core sample, which would be much cheaper and less destructive to the parking structure. Kathy said she's prepared to be wrong. She will be fine if she's wrong about the location of the bodies. Her question is just, why not check? Now, Kathy then received another tip in 2008 from people who rented a house in Springfield. They had gone back into a crawl space in the house and found a shoebox a previous tenant or possibly a previous owner had left there. Inside the shoebox were clippings about the missing women, two identical silver spoon style rings, a diamond ring, and then another ring that's been described as a birthstone type ring but without any other information like the color of the stone. And these aren't the only tips Kathy has gotten. A lot of people have come to her with information since she started doing her independent investigation. She says she passes all of these tips and leads to the police department. She has gotten so much information that in a 2017 Crime Watch Daily episode on the case, she says she knows what happened. She seemed hesitant to talk in the episode, like she was worried about saying too much. And that's fair, since she lives in the area, and if the person or persons behind this are still in the area, she could be in danger if they think she knows too much. She said that she had gotten threats already and told to leave the case alone. What she did reveal is that one of the women who lived in the house was the target, but she wouldn't say which one. Stacy was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The women were all murdered before the sun came up, but she wouldn't give a motive or anything else except to say, quote, there is a reason this case hasn't been solved, and that gives me goosebumps every time I read that. So that pretty much brings us up to the present day on the case. The police have been a lot more tight-lipped about the investigation since those very early days. We know there have been tips on locations the women were buried and those places, except for the hospital, they have all been searched. I know that it has been said that it's almost impossible for the women to be buried in the hospital parking lot. I think that we have been very open about how we feel about psychics on this show. I know that the police didn't see any benefits in the excavation, but it wasn't going to cost them or the taxpayers anything. There is obviously something there. I think it's worth it. What if it is them? 
As to who I think was involved, honestly, there have been so many sketchy people we've talked about these last two weeks, and we haven't really scratched the surface on sketchy in the area. It could have been any one of them, to be honest, or it could have been someone else entirely. Unfortunately, I don't hold out that much hope that the case is going to be solved. The crime scene was compromised from the start, so any usable DNA evidence was gone before they started. I think it will take finding the bodies at this point to really jumpstart the investigation. I definitely agree. I don't think the investigation is going to go anywhere unless or until they find the bodies. I do think that this is likely drug-related. I feel like there's just too many people overlapping in their lives that have some type of criminal element. I think it is possible that Susie saw something. Maybe she wasn't going to talk then, but they knew that she was going to testify about another boyfriend and they got worried. Or maybe she was going to say something, but she was waiting until after graduation so that she can enjoy the end of high school before she deals with whatever was going on. I'm not saying that's 100% what happened, but I think it's a strong possibility. I do think that at least one of the women in that house who lived there was targeted, and I think based on lifestyle, it's most likely Susie. You know, Cheryl worked, went home, fixed up her house, enjoyed time with her friends, but she really wasn't out there doing a whole lot. She was a homebody, whereas Susie was out there and she was running with a rougher crowd. I think It's kind of hard for me to believe that other teenagers did this. So I would look at her social group and I would look up. I would look at older people involved in that group. So the tips are still coming in and the police are still following them. We usually end missing persons episodes with information on the missing. And we're going to do that here. But let's talk about a description of the perpetrator first. Obviously, we don't have any witnesses, but we do have a profile from FBI Special Agent James Wright. He's worked on some very high-profile FBI cases like the Patty Hearst kidnapping and the case of the Unabomber. There isn't a lot of information to go on since there are no bodies, little evidence, and no clear motive like a robbery or a sexual assault. So the profile is vague, but it is something that may trigger something for someone. First, he believes that more than one person was involved. There was a primary perpetrator and that others may not even fully understand their involvement or they may know, but they didn't know what was going to happen before it happened. Whether this means they helped with an abduction or a disposal, we don't know. Second, he also leaves open the possibility that the primary perpetrator didn't plan this. While we assume it was planned because of how flawless this seemed to be carried out, It is possible that he didn't plan on abducting or murdering anyone that night. The last important point is that this crime took time, a lot of time. Anyone who was involved would have left their home for several hours in the middle of the night. If they lived with someone, their absence may have been noted and they would have had some excuse for it. So someone may be involved by simply providing a false alibi. If their relationship with that person changes or they feel guilty about lying, it's not too late to come forward. Cheryl Elizabeth Levitt was 47 years old at the time of her disappearance and would now be 74 years old. She was five foot tall and 110 pounds. She had brown eyes and bleached blonde hair. She did wear eyeglasses, but her only known pair was left behind at the house. Suzanne Elizabeth Streeter was 19 at the time of her disappearance. 
She would be 45 years old now. At the time she went missing, she was somewhere around 5 foot 3 and 100 pounds. Like her mother, she had brown eyes and bleach blonde hair. She also had a small tumor on the corner of her mouth. She had not had any dental work, which would be notable since most people by the age of 19 have had some type of fillings or orthodontia. And Stacy Kathleen McCall was 18 years old when she went missing and would now be 44 years old. She had dark blonde or light brown hair and blue eyes. She had a cleft in her chin and birthmarks on her chin and her right arm. Stacy suffered from severe migraines and would need to seek medical help for these if she left without her prescription to combat these migraines. Anyone with any information related to this disappearance needs to call the Springfield Police Department at 417-864-1810. We will put this phone number in the show notes. It's time to bring these women home. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Insight Podcast, Twitter at Insightful Pod, Instagram at Insight Pod, or email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash insightpod. And a special thank you to Chesgrave Music for our new custom theme.